Well, good morning, everyone. What a wonderful time to look out and see so many of you. You probably noticed how many children have been here. I know there are many friends and guests and visitors of both Karen and Daniel, and we want to say a very warm welcome to all of you. But today, we're going to have a baby dedication. I can't lie, these are one of my favorite events in the life of a pastor and the life of a church. <coughs> Excuse me. And what I want to talk about this morning is the idea of Christianity in the home. Now, if you have your Bibles and you've got that open there to Mark chapter 10, we have been reading through the Gospel of Mark in our monthly reading. If you are part of Calvary, we have chosen different books of the Bible, 12 different books that we will focus on for every month. And this month has been the Gospel of Mark. And you've already, if you've been doing a chapter a day, you've read through it once, and now you're already up to chapter 7 and again. But I have to tell you the truth, when I got to Mark chapter 10 earlier this month, this chapter really jumped out at me. Mark is known for being one of the shortest gospels in sense of chapters, but it actually has quite a bit of volume because each of the chapters have quite a few verses with them. But if you actually look at this chapter, when Debbie often asks me, hey, what's your passage and your title? She, I sent it to her, and she sent back to me. She said, do you really want me to put all of that in a slide? Because here's what I sent her. Baby dedication service, Mark 10, Christianity in the home, religion, faith, salvation, sovereignty, gospel, missing it, suffering, and example. <laughs> all right, there you go. Those are all my points for this morning. No, it's not. Um, but that's actually the whole chapter. If you'll notice in chapter 10, verses 1 to uh, verse 12, you have religion. You have the religious establishment going to Jesus, trying to entrap him all about divorce and remarriage. They're going to talk about marriage. What is fascinating to me as they come out of that, then you have this part that Jerry read in verses 13 to 16 about let the children come to me. So you go from a group of people that think they know everything to parents who want to bring the simplest of human beings, children, in which Jesus says to his disciples, this is who you need to be like. From that, you get another example of someone who is religious but misses it, and that's the crux of what I want to talk about this morning, in the rich young man. Then you get a whole discussion about who can be saved, where the disciples once again miss it. Then you get the gospel in verses 32 to 34, where Jesus foretells his death a third time. And then you get this ultimate, I think that Jesus must have just rolled his eyes because earlier he was indignant with his disciples. And here James and John come to him and basically say, hey, listen, when you get all the power, we want to be on your left hand and your right hand. And then Jesus unpacks what it means to suffer for the gospel. And then finally in chapter 10, you get, I think, one of only two examples of all these examples of not getting it, religiously blind, self-righteous, proud, and looking for position, you have these little children, and then you end the chapter with this blind man called Bartimaeus. And of interest is that Jesus asks the rich young ruler and Bartimaeus the same question, what do you want me to do? In one case, the rich young ruler, he wanted eternal life. And that can sound noble, but he didn't want Jesus. He wanted eternal life. Whereas blind Bartimaeus simply wanted to see Jesus. Today is one of my favorite things to be a part of. 
We are here to dedicate, really, Karen and Daniel, but we're going to bring Leslie and Jacob here, and they're not only children, they're a creation of God. For all of the next generation here, they're a part of the next generation, not only of Calvary Baptist Church, but of the Ryan family. And like many that are sitting here this morning who are grandparents, I'm sure both Karen and Daniel's family have wondered, like Debbie and I, what will Leslie and Jacob be like as they grow? What will their talents be? What will their interests be? What foods will I like? Because I've wondered those things for my kids and for my grandbabies. And of course, like so many of you, Debbie and I have found ourselves around our kitchen table praying for our children and our grandchildren wondering about their salvation, wondering how they will see God, wondering who they will marry, wondering how do we protect them and influence them and point them to Jesus. And I am sure that is the universal set of questions for any parent or any grandparent, aunts and uncles, and so on and so forth. But I am sure, just like me and you and many of us here in this room, it's not just me that thinks that way. Every parent here has all the grandparents. In fact, I would submit that anyone here who deals with life and existence has a set of questions. And this is why it might be a focus on baby baby dedication. This is really about all of us. Because I think we've all grappled with these questions as human beings. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? I think this is the question that everybody today grapples with more than maybe any generation in human history. Am I happy? We have a crisis in Canada and the United States because now we have lost the will to ask who is God. And now we've substituted that with who is a God or who could be our God. And then we can wrestle with what really matters. Why do I have parents? Why do I have the parents I have? Or why didn't I have parents? Why was I adopted? We have questions like, why has this happened to me? Where was God when? We are people of questions, aren't we? That's just reality. And the passage before us in Mark chapter 10 starts with a question, as we will see in just a moment, but when it comes to life, marriage, family, parenting, children, if there is any greater example of the gift, and for us this morning, the gift of a child, then there is no greater example than Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus Christ himself is the gift from God the Father, who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son. So today I'm asking us to function as a church. I don't want you to check out and go, well, Steve, we'll sit here politely while you talk to Karen and Daniel. That's not what I want you to do. I want us to function as a church. I want us to obey Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. And while we honor the Ryan family... There's no doubt that we also need to obey Romans 12, and that's to know, owe no debt except a debt of love. So we want to be men and women, brothers and sisters of the family of God who love each other, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We want to obey Philippians 2 when Paul asked those two ladies at the church of Philippi to be of the same mind. We want to obey Ephesians 4 where we're told how a holistic church family works together in each other's lives. And let me once again remind us all here 
You don't get to check your mind or your heart simply because you think, well, this isn't for me, because it is. And finally, let me remind us all, and especially Karen and Daniel, along with your friends that have come with you and your family, what's really happening here. Let me make sure I explain it again, since it's been since last Mother's Day that we did a baby dedication. Dedicating a child actually acknowledges God's sovereignty. Not only over the child, but even preeminently and more importantly over mom and dad. You see, today, Daniel and Karen will present their children before us and before God and his people asking for us for something. They're asking God for grace and wisdom in carrying out their responsibilities. They're asking for us to pray for them and to support them. Parents also come praying that their child might one day trust Jesus Christ as Savior for the forgiveness of sin. Because I want to make sure you know, knowing that we come from various religious backgrounds, that what is happening today when when Daniel and Karen bring Jacob and Leslie up here, this does in no way save them. This actually admits they need saving. Now, I want you to notice something with me, though, in Mark chapter 10 with me, all the way back to the beginning. Because as I said to you earlier, it starts with an argument. The religion was at it again. The scribes and the Pharisees, they come, and they want to know something. The Pharisees came up in verse 2 in order to test him being Christ and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This time, they want to entrap Jesus. But of course, Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows exactly how to handle this situation. But amazingly, it's what happens next that I find fascinating. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all string the events listed in Mark 10 together, each of their own accounts, and each include the instance of parents bringing little children to Jesus. It's a fascinating thing. In fact, I think it's the only chapter in all three Gospels where they go out of their way to put the sequence of the question about divorce, remarriage, followed by the blessing of the children, the rich young ruler, and so on and so forth. It's in Matthew 19, it's in Luke chapter 18, and Mark 10. But this is a fascinating thing for me. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while stringing these things, each include the instance of parents bringing their little children to Jesus. In fact, Jesus is recorded by Matthew in Matthew 19 as telling the disciples, they actually have to become like a little child. In Mark chapter 10, notice the word that Mark uses. It said, Jesus was indignant. That's a word we don't hear very much in our modern language and our modern English. But every one of you knows, just the sound of the word doesn't sound pleasant. Jesus was indignant. He was, almost, he was embarrassed. He, he couldn't believe that his representatives would actually have a part in com- com- trying to hinder parents from bringing their children, their infants, their toddlers to him. Now, follow through on all that Jesus teaches, though, and yet notice what happens. Notice, for me, gives me hope. Notice how slow these poor disciples are. Look at verse 35, because down in verse 35, look at what happens. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Man, that's pretty bold. They're still thinking in terms of position and acquisition and affirmation. But I want you to realize, Karen and Ryan, Karen and Daniel, Ryan's the last name. And for parents and grandparents here this morning, for every son and daughter, for every man and woman, 
Let me say this as clearly as I possibly can for every one of you this morning. Religion cannot and will not save you. Thank you, Matthew. I'll buy you a coffee tomorrow. (laughs) Sorry, Adam, you're too late. (laughs) I think I read somewhere that there are over 6,000 religions and philosophies in the world today. And I want you to know not one of them will make you right with God. Not one. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ can not only save you, but complete you, heal you, transform you, and empower you to not only follow him, but die to yourself. And this is why we should be an example of humility, an example of what it looks like to trust Jesus and not ourselves, to trust our relationship with Christ and not our religion. And that, and only that, will influence the next generation. I want us to focus on the one I read about last week, the man we call the rich young ruler. And all the while we think about this man, I want to think in terms of the disciples that are watching this whole thing take place. What must have been going on through their minds? Brother Jerry read the passage, but I want to ask you, what jumped out at you? What questions does this passage evoke from your mind? Have you ever known someone who came to church, seemed very interested in Jesus and the Bible, asked many questions about it, almost seemed excited about God and heaven and this idea of eternal life. They come to church or they come to a Bible study, they come to your home, they wanted to serve, they wanted to be around stuff. They even asked, how do I get saved? How do I have what you have? How do I know I'm right with God? And you're all excited and you're telling other people about it. And then it seems that over days or weeks or months, that person while they seem to be all in for a moment, now seems to drift off, lose interest, stops coming. And before you know it, they almost seem worse off than before. They're more than just complacent now. They're antagonistic. They're critical. They're even cynical. I can tell you by personal testimony, I've seen this situation at least a hundred times and maybe more. And think back on how many who have walked through the doors of even Calvary Baptist over her almost 30 years of history. How many people have we witnessed to and lived life with? So friends, I want you to listen to me. This passage in Mark 10 had everything to do with not only Karen and Daniel for their special day of dedication, but for every one of us here. One pastor says this, Anyone who has done much personal witnessing has encountered persons who make a profession of faith in Christ, but whose subsequent lives show no change in attitudes or behavior. And when they indicate no love for God and Christ, no interest in the Bible or in prayer or in fellowship of God's people, this man says there is no good reason to believe they were ever saved. Now that makes us uncomfortable. You see, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus Christ is not only teaching his disciples, but he's actually pleading with this rich man. And I believe the reason why I'm preaching it is there's something here, not only for Karen and Daniel, 
but for parents to see and learn, for us as a church to see and learn. And may our Lord give this man a test, and he gives it to you and I. Kevin DeYoung says, this man had a choice to make between Christ and his possessions, between Christ and his sin, and tragically, he failed the test. You see, no matter what we may have believed, sorry, no matter what he may have believed, because he was unwilling to forsake all, he could not be a disciple of Christ. You see, salvation is for those who are willing to forsake everything. Why? Because when you realize what you get in Christ, you don't feel like you're giving anything up. The incident recorded in Mark 10 gives us insight into how some people who show great interest in the gospel never come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember what Jerry read, this man went away from Christ, sorrowful. Now notice in it, not because, it wasn't because he heard the wrong message. It wasn't because he did not believe about God. It was because he was unwilling to admit his sin and unwilling to forsake all he had and obey Christ as Lord. And let me show you the difference. In the parallel passage, I said back in Matthew chapter 19, back in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks seven parables. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, so to speak. And he uses them and he tells them, two of them are really, really short in verses 44 to 46. Here's how Jesus explains the gospel. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. In other words, he's saying the gospel to know that you are right with God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man or woman found. And then notice they covered it up. Now watch this. Then in his or her joy, they go and sell all that he has to buy that field. You see what, what Jesus is saying? If you understand what you get in Jesus Christ, you joyfully give up everything else because you get everything in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven or the gospel is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Why would someone do that? Because they don't see it as costing them, they see it as investment in. Yet too much of us in St. John's, Newfoundland, in April of 2023, view religiously, I've got to earn, I've got to weigh in the balances, the pros and the cons. See, my challenge for Daniel and Karen as parents today and for all of us of a church is going to be exactly the same. It's not different. But I do want to speak to the parents of our church. So today, Karen, Daniel, I want to give you five things that I would ask of you to teach Leslie and, of course, Jacob from this passage as parents. Five principles to take into your life as we walk through this passage of Scripture in Mark 10 called the rich young ruler in 17 down to 22. Number one, if you want to take notes, Karen and Daniel, I'm asking you to teach your children to know who Jesus really is. And for our entire church, I want you to know, you need to know who Jesus really is. Look at the passage. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus. He has just tried to be entrapped by the Pharisees. He's had to rebuke his 
uh, disciples because they were not letting these children come. And by the way, this idea of blessing means, look at what it says in verse 16. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Don't ever miss that because at, at, at the end of my sermon, I'm going to ask Karen and Daniel to come up here with Jacob and Leslie. I'm going to ask the other elders to come and we're going to do a brave thing and try and hold Leslie and hold uh, Jacob. I think Jacob will be more cooperative than maybe Leslie. All right? And the reason we do that is because we want to follow this. We want to take them up in our arms. We want to pray over them and bless them. And so this is what happens. But then this, as he, Jesus is setting on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, noticed the posture of humility and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, who do you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Teach your children to know who Jesus really is. In verse 17, we learn that the one who came to him was this young man. In verse 22, we know he went away because he had many possessions, so he was wealthy. Luke tells us in his chapter, in chapter 18, that this young man was a ruler in the synagogue. So he was an especially honored young man with a high position of influence. He was religious. He was devout. He was honest. He was wealthy. He was prominent. He was influential. He had it all. But verse 17 suggests how unusual and unexpected it was that he would admit he lacked eternal life and he would come to Jesus to find it. This was a religiously knowledgeable guy with great wealth and to juxtaposition, I think, the gospel writers from the religion of the Pharisees to the indignation of a group of disciples that didn't think children were worthy to take up Jesus' time or disturb him, comes one who looks like he fits the bill of how we would describe a noble church person. And to some degree, he knew he didn't have everything. But what do we see in this man as we approach Jesus? We see that this man not only knew he had a need, but he felt that need. He comes running to him. He kneels before him and he says, I need eternal life. I want to know I'm going to live forever. And I can tell you, I'm now 51. I've been back home in my home city since 2015, so almost eight and a half years now. And I can tell you from everywhere I go and I interact with people, there are two things that people fear more than anything in life. And that is the ability to provide for themselves or family and death. How am I going to live? When will I die? What happens to me when I die? And this rich young ruler is no different. So he comes urgent with this posture of humility, comes to him publicly, which is a little bit of humiliation on his part, comes to him with a sense of respect. And for Daniel and Karen, I don't think I have to convince you both that you guys have a need, a need in raising both Leslie and Jacob. Nor do I really think I need to convince most of you here this morning that you've got needs either because my life as a pastor is often listening to you tell me about your needs. We are a needy people. And I'm not saying what you think you need. I'm saying, what does God say you need? Because notice how Jesus responds. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Which if you're taking note, he has just listed six of the ten commandments. Which, by the way, are all of the external commandments. 
They're all the ones that you can see. And you'll notice the rich wrong ruler says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. You see, here is the greatest thing you and I can do as parents, what I can do as a pastor, what we can all do as a church. We need to answer this question for everyone we meet daily over and over again. And that question is this, do you know who Jesus is? Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. You'll notice in the passage, the rich young ruler never addresses that question. He never even attempts to ask it. Kevin DeYoung says, in Isaiah 9, the great prophet hails the Messiah, something, a passage we hear about a lot at Christmas, and it says, as the light of the world in a land of deep darkness. He is the child born under oppression and eventual execution of the Roman government. He is our wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He reveals to us the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah says, of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will rule with both justice and righteousness from this time forth and evermore. And we love to hear those verses uh, read at Christmas time. We love to hear Handel's Messiah when these are the words that are sung. But in Mark chapter 10, based on Jesus' response, why do you call me good and don't ask me about what is good? It must mean Jesus wants to drive home a very important point. You see, a lot of people in Newfoundland and Labrador today still think that Jesus is a good teacher, perhaps. Kevin DeYoung says, that's a popular answer. Jesus was really a humble prophet. He was a visionary, a political um, uh, guy that brought political change, a teacher of peace and justice. But some of his followers made up all these things about him. They invented the miracles and the exalted language about himself and the resurrection. Maybe the Christ of faith is completely different from the Christ of history. DeYoung goes on to say, maybe you've thought about it as well, but consider two major problems with this theory. First, the only Jesus we have is actually a Jesus of faith. Virtually everything we know about Jesus is given to us through the eyes and pens of those who believed in him. So any attempt to find the historical Jesus behind the Jesus of faith is an attempt to find what we would like Jesus to be and not an attempt based on history. In other words... The only history we have about Jesus comes from those who have been changed by him. So either we're going to have to accept what Jesus' followers said about him, or we got to admit that we really don't know anything about this man. Those are your only two options. But there's also a second problem with this. When you take Jesus simply as a good moral teacher and that's it, the people who argue for this approach almost never take into account all of Jesus' teachings. See, what they mean when people say, Jesus was a good teacher, it was Thomas, Thomas Jefferson, believe it or not, created an entire Bible that was called the Red Letter Bible. He only wanted the words of Jesus, which was a bit ironic, because last time I checked, this was all the words of Jesus. And this is the problem that you have. What they mean is not so much that they respect Jesus as teacher, but that Jesus was smart enough to say some things that we might say. So people appreciate Jesus, the good teacher, when he talks about turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, or giving to the needy, but 
Then we ignore all of his teachings on the parables where he talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth and being cast into outer darkness. We don't want to hear about those teachings. And this is what I've said before. You can't cherry pick Jesus. Either all the Bible is true or none of it is. How many people today will say they love Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount except they breeze past the places where Jesus says those who refuse to forgive will be punished and those who are controlled by lust will be actually cast into hell. Divorce except on the grounds of sexual immorality is wrong and everyone who doesn't build his house on Jesus is a fool. We don't like to focus on those passages. We loved, uh, we gravitate, and we love the cards that said, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And we overlooked the times when Jesus said his coming would bring division on the earth and turn mother against daughter and brother against brother and father against son. No one should hail Jesus as a great moral teacher until he or she reads through all that Jesus taught. And this is what I'm challenging you as a church and specifically Karen and Daniel. Don't cheapen Jesus. In fact, make so much of him, for Karen and Daniel, make so much of Christ that Leslie and Jacob are in awe and have an overwhelming sense that he must be worshiped and must be listened to. That Jesus can not only be trusted, but must be. That no one else will be more truthful with them, loving towards them, protecting of them, helpful to them, and most importantly, a savior to them. Be a great mom and a great dad, but you will never be their savior. Oh, and by the way, that's for all of us, every one of us. And then as parents, secondly, teach your children to ask Jesus the right questions. See, we have a problem in our world today. We're asking all the wrong questions. We're not asking the right questions. Look at what this man thinks is the most important question. What must I do to have eternal life? You see, he's not thinking in terms of, of, of quality, but quantity. Happily ever after. This year, it's young ruler. Disney must have been around in the first century. And we all just lived happily ever after. In fact, he asked about eternal life, tells us his thinking was somewhat religious as well. In other words, he's been raised and was spending time around religion. Does that not sound familiar? Have I not described St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador? But look at the questions he asks. He asks three of them. What must I do to have eternal life? Which commandments do I need to keep? What do I still lack? Really, what is happening here? He's really listening and saying what many of us today say. I love my life. I'm afraid to die. Tell me what I got to do to stay alive with my stuff. But the problem with this is that the man never believed he was a sinner or a bad guy. Now, that didn't mean he thought he was perfect. The fact that he comes proves that he wasn't perfect. How many people have you talked to? Now, Steve, listen, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as. In fact, I don't know in 50 years if I've ever had anybody tell me, I am perfect and I am right with God and God will be blessed to welcome me into heaven. Every human being I've ever met has often said to me, hey, Steve, I'm not perfect you know, but, but listen, me and God, we're good. We're okay. 
because I might not be at the front of the line, but I'm definitely not at the back of the line. And it's interesting because most of the people in the world think only the guy at the back of the line is the one that's actually going to hell. And it's almost like we think hell has got only got one person, whoever was at the back of the line. But if that logic is true, then heaven's only, heaven's only going to have one person who was ever at the front of the line. Right? And so these are the bad questions. He thought he might be a little short in some areas. He might need to clean up his act in certain areas. But come on, I'm not that bad. I have just enough Jesus in my life. And if, maybe if I'm a little short, okay, okay. Tell me what I need to be sure. Things will be, uh, I'll make sure things are up a little bit. But notice the inconsistency. I'll take the teachings I like and ditch the rest. I'll take Jesus' good deeds, but not his hard words. I'll take his love for humanity, but not his desire to glorify himself. Don't say you follow Jesus. Don't say that you even think he's a good teacher. Be honest enough to say, I like the judge not line. I like the love your enemy bit, and I love the cup of cold water thing, but that's really all I love. Other than that, Jesus was a quack and not really very nice. See, to accept that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and accept that he is the perfect Son of God, the King of the nations, the righteous judge, the hope of the world, and then live like it doesn't matter? How? One man writes, if you thought I was God, and I don't think I need to assure you that I'm not, you would be very interested in what I thought and how I wanted you to live and what I was like. You would talk to me and worship me and tell others about my true identity. And if you did not and did none of those things, it would be right to question whether you really thought I was God. So for Daniel and Karen and for our church, faith is more than an intellectual assent to certain doctrines. Faith is an entire life based under the conviction that those doctrines are true. So as parents, when you teach Leslie and you teach Jacob to ask the right questions of Jesus Ask the right questions about himself and herself, about life, about evil, about good, about morality, about truth. It's certain and uh, very important and super important that next you teach your children that rules don't make the heart grow fonder. Something that I learned later in life that I so wish I had learned when Debbie and I were first having our kids. is that rules don't change hearts. I grew up in a very legalistic world. I was conditioned to perform, to pretend, to try and win approval. The problem with that was when I had seasons in my life when I kept the rules, all it did was fill me with pride. And when I had seasons in my life, which seemed to be more than the seasons of good times, when I didn't keep any of the rules, all it did was drive me underground with shame and guilt or anger and resentment. I'm not who said it, but I think it's good for us to hear as a church from time to time, love without rules leads to chaos. So it's not just as men and women, as parents, as families. You just, I love my kids, but I, I never have any boundaries. I love my kids, but I, I don't have any rules. No, love without rules leads to chaos, but rules without love leads to rebellion. 
And we are called to balance both. So we need to teach our kids that rules won't make the heart grow fonder. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't think we don't need to be guided in our actions. He displays this in all of Mark 10. So what happens if we think we can be right with God by keeping rules? Then we think we're owed something. Hence why our rich young ruler asks, what do I still lack? I've kept the rules. Now I'm owed something. Please, please, we need to teach. You guys need to teach Leslie and Jacob. We need to teach every child in our church that God is so much bigger and deeper than karma. So fourthly, teach your children that God looks on the heart and not our actions. You know, I often wonder when even country singers and rock singers come up with songs. Remember that Shania Twain song, That Don't Impress Me Much? You realize God looks at all of our good deeds done for ourselves to try and impress him, and he goes, that doesn't impress me much. What impresses him when we come and go, I got nothing but Jesus. Do you remember that Alistair Begg video that's made its way around YouTube where he talks about that thief on the cross? And he says, what do you think that thief on the cross says when he gets to heaven? He was never baptized. He was never uh, taking communion. He's never a member of a church. He just dies on a cross, wakes up before God, and God says, what right do you have to be here? And he says, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. That's the gospel. Now, let me ask you something, though. Do you think that if he was able to get off that cross, he wasn't going to live for Jesus? He had been forgiven much. And then finally, Daniel and Karen teach your children that Jesus is worth more than anything or anyone, including you. And herein lies the tragedy of our example in Mark 10. This man, not only, this man only wanted Jesus as long as it meant he could have what he really loved, his money. And Jesus was really an add-on for him, not the center but at least the man was consistent. At least he was consistent. He walked away. He didn't stay and pretend. Ultimately, Jesus wasn't worth it for this young man. But many think one thing about this man. You might be tempted to put this young man with so many others we encounter today. For instance, how many folks, maybe even here today, will think, Jesus, he's a nobody. Maybe he existed but maybe he didn't even exist. Or if he did exist, we can't know anything about him. The gospel are myths and legends with no grounding in history. I may like the victory from defeat theme in the gospels, but I don't need Jesus for that. I don't really care who this Jesus is, and neither should you. The billions of Christians singing to Jesus this week are worshiping a figment of their imagination. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 22. He came looking for something, he wouldn't give up his riches, and yet something that our world refuses to admit, he went away sorrowful. Why is it almost every day you open up the entertainment news and someone who is famous and rich and powerful has taken their own life, has been married eight times? is drowning their sorrows in pills or substances or needles. If living your way meant happiness, everybody would do it. But why are we in a world filled with pain? He left without assurance. He left and still had his doubts. 
he left and his fears would still cling to him. But Daniel and Karen and Crowley Baptist, your goals and ours is to patiently walk through life with our kids, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers as they struggle with these types of issues. Our goals as parents, our reality as Christians is to model and live a consistent life, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to worship Him and obey. So here is our prayer and desire as parents and as a church. I cannot persuade you to trust in Jesus, but I can show you that I do. I can tell you about him. I can answer your questions and in some small way try to show you that it is not unreasonable and is in fact plausible that Jesus is not only real, but he can be trusted and believed in and upon. But if you don't want to believe, you're going to find a reason not to believe. And as parents, your calling is to be faithful. So, if I could ask Paul and John and Steve to make their way up here, I want to say to Daniel and Karen, I'm going to call you up in just a minute, but to everybody else here this morning, what's the result of this? What do I want you to go home with? I want you to realize that those who accept all these things as true will live and die as if they were. Don't leave here another Sunday simply be being religious. Do you know Jesus is God and are you willing to live as if he is? Secondly, that you don't accept these things or if you don't already accept these things, you will ask God to help you understand them. And then I want you to teach yourself. Remember I said, Daniel and Karen can be a great mom and a great dad. In fact, they might be the best mom and dad that the church has ever known. That doesn't mean they have any power to save Jacob or Leslie. You can point them to the right knowledge of Jesus, but only Jesus can be their savior. You can live the right kind of life in front of them. You can model it. You can make much of Jesus, but you must pray. And the reason they are coming up here is really to ask every one of us, would you pray that we will be faithful and that Jesus will save our children? So here are my final questions. Questions I asked at the beginning. Why are you here? Karen and Daniel, why are you doing this? Don't do it to be religious. Don't do it to impress your parents, your friends. How valuable is Jesus to you? Because don't forget, in our passage of Mark 10, the most powerful part of it, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. So parents, church, man and woman here today, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves wants you. Jesus will save you, but you need to believe in who he is, who you are, what you need, and what he will do. If you're here this morning as parents, this is what you need to teach your children and reteach yourself. Paul, Peter, Matthew, each disciple gave up this world's version of living to embrace Christ, and they died. Not wealthy, but needs met. They died, many of them early, but with peace and grace and mercy and confidence in eternal life with Christ. They gave up what they couldn't keep gaining so they could have what they couldn't lose, Jesus. So, Calvary Baptist, friends and guests and visitors, isn't it obvious 
What will you do with Jesus? Because one day we want Leslie and Jacob to be confronted with that question, and they'll know who answers it.